I hate. Hey, Tom. Did you know that you can tune a piano, but that fine-tuning a large language model is still an unresolved in research question? Yes. <laughs> I did. Um, welcome to the retort. <laughs> Today, we're going to kind of do a few things. We're going to comment on some of the little feather ruffling from our first episode, which always means you're off to a good start. We're going to talk a little bit about RLHF, and then we're going to go towards one of the topics that is the reason we motivated the show of kind of discussing ethics and safety. So probably a lot of things to, that you may be interested in, I think kind of to start Tom and Tom didn't tell me he was doing this, but you went off and um, did an interview with someone at VentureBeat about topics on our podcast in the first episode. And then I think you had some confused comments from multiple leaders of the field, like Thomas Dittrich. I don't know how to pronounce the name exactly. Jan said something. A lot of other peoples were involved, but maybe less directionally, like Melanie Mitchell. First, do you want to yeah? Do you want to recap what you said in the interview and/or the pod, and then we can kind of go into what it means. Yeah, um, it was an interesting experiment for me to start saying some of these things in public. It was in tandem with many of the themes, I mean, that we've already discussed here and that we'll continue to talk about together. A lot of what I was saying was that when we talk about, and I'm not the first person to say this, uh, most famously, I guess, famously is relative in our circles, I guess. It's it's known, it's part of the lore of the field. People like Moritz Hart or Ben Recht, uh, other semi-prominent mid-career machine learning practitioners have given talks or published papers or made suggestions to the effect that machine learning and in particular deep learning is kind of more like alchemy than like science. And that's the comparison that they're making. When they say that it's a form of alchemy, what they mean is that it is either a pseudoscience or it's just not rigorous in the way that science is. That it's kind of like people twiddling with knobs, seeing what works, seeing what converges, uh, and then drawing conclusions from that based largely off of intuition, uh, largely off of what they what feels like is going on, maybe rather than a rigorous understanding mechanistically of why something is happening, where rigorous could mean either a mathematical formal model or something that is just really rigorously understood empirically, very robust in that sense. That's the sort of canonical understanding of alchemy that it seems a lot of grad students are kind of raised with as something in the back of their heads as they themselves maybe spend months or years playing with, you know, tuning these things. That's not what I meant when I compared the kind of current crop of up-and-coming practitioners training large language models to alchemists. I actually meant that literally 
the younger generation of people who are motivated to work at the companies that are building the biggest, the largest, the scalablest models that there are, I meant literally that many of those people think of themselves as doing a kind of magic. They are not as hung up as the older generation is or was at justifying what they are doing through reference to science. And on top of that, what motivates them is fundamentally supernatural. Whether that's the hunt for AGI, uh, the hunt for ever greater capabilities only through recourse to scale or attention. You know, attention is all you need. There's, there's a spirit of a kind of blitheness that underlies, I think, work like that, that many people lean into. Yeah, I think there's a couple things here. I think I have a take. I think that maybe they do this because it actually works. And when our generation was being raised to do computer science, we actually had to use the scientific method a little bit to try to figure out what the heck is actually going to work in machine learning. And now so much of it just works out of the box that it is more akin to just, you just get progress in the direction that you go. If you invest time in the right data or whatever, you throw compute at the right problem, it does tend to work out. That's one difference. And then I think when you extrapolate across a longer time frame, is probably why some more senior members are more kind of frustrated with this label in a way. Yeah. So it seems like part of what was coming out in the discussion online was people assuming that I guess what I meant by alchemy was something like a dogmatic trust in data or a dogmatic trust in theory or just a dogmatic trust in any any single modality of the entire toolbox of things that you would need to really do a rigorous experimental scientific study of for example a large language model or its capabilities and again that's not really what i was saying what i was saying was that to, to be an alchemist in this world really means that you, you don't really care that much about any one of those things because what you're motivated by is just seeing what comes out for reasons that you don't have and that it kind of what makes it sexy is that you don't need reasons to see interesting things come out of these models. Um, that's, that's part of the charisma. That's part of the game. And... That, that that's what seems to be that seems for reasons I didn't intend to kind of upset or make people uncomfortable. Although the other side of that is this was maybe also in the shade of the responses that I was getting. I didn't mean that pejoratively. So when I use the word alchemist, I don't mean that as dissing the people who are doing this or dissing even the motivation to do something like alchemy when you were playing with these models. I actually meant the opposite. What I meant was that to truly engage with all the dimensions of what makes these models interesting and will continue to make them interesting over the next several months and years is that we should not try and artificially delimit that conversation to the bounds of what is considered scientifically credible or rigorous. 
On the contrary, it needs to be expanded to be thinking about what makes these models political, what makes them culturally transformative, what maybe makes them spiritually significant or relevant for our understanding of consciousness. The kind of lurking spirit here is that what large language models represent, what they promise in the eyes of many, not all, but many of the people who are fascinated by them, is the moment when the field of AI finally becomes unmoored from the confines of cognitive science. It's the moment when building artificial agents that can reason and plan, act strategically, make use of information, do so by means that are incommensurate with and go beyond the limits of the human brain, the human mind, the way that humans happen contingently by evolution to represent the world to ourselves by means of the senses and then act based on that. There's a power and a mystique in that promise. And that's, I suspect very strongly, what motivates many of the largely younger generation of people to enter into this field and work within it, whether or not you believe in AGI. I actually don't even think it's constrained specifically by that belief, although I think there's heavy overlap between that belief and this kind of spirit of alchemy that I can certainly sense among these practitioners. I feel like I was one step removed from your definition of alchemy, which is not necessarily believing in magic, but generally believing that the capabilities are more than you expect. And it, I feel like there's a distinction there. And at least maybe it's the people that are at the, have like slowly funneled down to the more established institutions that have those kind of, I think maybe a more practical lens than viewing it as magic. I guess there's, like I was going to say, I don't know if anyone seriously has ever told me that these things are magic, but I don't know. It's kind of like what open AI's marketing is sometimes. So I don't it's like... Right. So one way of making sense of what I'm saying is that it only really becomes alchemy when it turns into PR, that the PR side of how these models are being built, sold to the public, either literally in terms of the money or just in terms of the advertising, that's sort of where it becomes magical or hand-wavy. I actually don't think that's the entire story here. And, and we'll see over the course of you know this podcast how deeply we go into this. This, this isn't going to be about the history of alchemy or whatnot. Like there's, other, there's actually another podcast called The History of Alchemy uh, podcast that's actually quite good at this. And we're not, we're not going to try and replace that in any way. But there is this idea in alchemy that many of the medieval alchemists in particular likes to kind of quote back to themselves, which is this idea of as above, so below. Uh, it was kind of a mantra for many alchemists. And what they meant by that was that when you're playing with the elements, when you're trying to turn lead into gold, when you're trying to do some kind of, you know, little chemical experiment in your closet, that what you observe there reflects in some deeper way the inner world, the inner reality of the alchemist, the alchemist themselves, their relation with the cosmos, their relation, they're basically the, the, the makeup of their own psyche is what's being reflected in these experiments. And frankly, the search for AGI, the, the kind of sussing out in these capabilities 
this idea of sparks of AGI, that's an alchemical title for a paper, because what it is implying is that there's something about the outputs of this language model that is indicative of the makeup of a self-aware conscious entity. That's, that's the glimmer of what's being implied. And that is the alchemical mantra, as above, so below. These experiments we're conducting are indicating a hidden metaphysical reality whose veil we are just now in the beginning stages of piercing. I even think that's probably even a better description for people than the, the like in search of magic thing. Because I don't think it's that it is in search of magic. I think it is like people are in search of this like creation and replication and then replication that goes beyond that. But there, there again, that's the like kind of clear semantic issue at play where AGI is probably the worst term in the book where I think that there will never be an agreed on term and that is what makes it so awful. Where I personally think that most reasonable definitions of AGI based on net productivity and or like multitask transfer and ability relative to humans will be solved. But the way that it is simultaneously used as like this long-term infinitely powerful creation is just not useful. Probably the field will be better off if no one ever uses that term again, because it is now grounded in two things that are so far apart. I don't think either of us is particularly committed to the term AGI. I don't expect either of us to particularly lean on it uh, in the course of these conversations. Um, we're probably going to get into the semantics of it, though, because that's that's a lot of where this lies. So again, to what I was saying earlier was basically, again, it's when you start to lean on this notion of sui generis order, sui generis creation or creativity, that's sort of where that's where it becomes this kind of mystical search, the supernatural quest. And there is that flavor in many of these discussions. And again, this is not at least as far as I can tell, not what the canonical critique of AI as alchemy was touching. Because again, that was really just to say, we're kind of just guessing, we're kind of just engineers acting like we're scientists. So when we say this stuff, we're kind of just alchemically whatever. Again, that's not, that's different than this idea that we're playing with the fabric of intelligence and slowly unearthing it through scale. Yeah, I think that it almost makes sense to kind of double down on this because it's what a lot of people are interested in and will lead into kind of the safety things. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot for this transition. What is your P doom? My P prob Yeah, your oh. probability of doom. <laughs> I recently was put into this exercise, so I have my answer. But um, what is your P doom? So I'm just supposed to give a number, right? That's, yes. the, that's the appeal. A, okay. a percentage. A percentage. That's right. Okay. Um, yeah. For some reason, five, five percent comes into my head. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say 0.05%. So you're, um, I'm about one in 200 human about um, time frames from now. AI actually destroys humanity which I also feel like is on the high side, but I think it's in the middle ground where you actually care about these things. 
I've been on a panel where people ask me that and I managed to not answer, which was pretty good. <laughs> is the idea, a, so what, but what does that tell you that my number is five? Um, it says that you're like moderately high X risker. Mm. I think like five to 50% is where like the high X riskers fall. Mm. Yeah, I mean, if I were to reflect on it, why I would assign that as my number, it's something in the neighborhood of we don't seem to have functioning institutions anymore. I sound I sound very old fashioned when I say that. I actually think that's more of a doomer thing to say though, even though it's like it, I'm not saying like we used to build things in this in this country or whatever. I mean something more like the Social fabric, honestly, feels more tenuous right now than any time, certainly in my own adult life, and probably as I reflect back, even in terms of my whole life, which sounded less impressive 10 years ago, but now that I'm in my mid-30s, that, that, that's kind of an increasingly, the fact that now it's worse and that I'm now 34, is grounds for me to, I think, just generally up my number on on, on X-risk situations and the propensity of AI to feed into that into a destructive way. Because because what's the what's the counterproposal? What's the odds that if we're in a destructive situation, that AI is going to get us out of it? Like who would seriously zero right? <laughs> I think I think even very I think I think there actually would be a large spread agreement on that. It's not like the state of AI is somehow going to walk us back from the precipice. <laughs> so yeah, I think the question primarily involves around like AI accelerationism, but I think your skirting of the answer is fine. Well, let me articulate it because I don't mean to skirt it. What I mean to say is I think we're just getting closer and closer to the precipice anyway. And so it actually takes less and less from AI to just push us over the rest of the edge. That's what I mean to say. So I mean, so my five is coming less from a place of a sincere kind of extrapolation of capabilities and more from a belief that a modest increase in capabilities combined with the general shit show of the state of things could easily make things catastrophically bad. That's where my five is coming from. Yeah, it's a more holistic picture of risk and harm than most people that are asked their P-Doom mm -hmm. think about. I think most people are just kind of worried about teenagers with laptops, which while they are generally good at trying things, I find it hard to believe that an AI will run wild by someone with their laptop putting it in a recursion or something. It's like, I, I understand that it's intention is supposed to be hard to think about and that's part of the point of why it's risky because it's like hard to foresee the issues but that's a big part of the risk we're at a weird moment where it's easier to believe in catastrophe than to believe in like anything else um like that's part of the reason i think these numbers are creeping up over time is that it's just very concrete what the risk scenarios could be. So even if they're not very likely, it's just very easy for some reason to imagine them. 
and harder and harder to imagine no risk scenarios from playing out at all over the next hundred years. So I guess that I guess that's both a statement of why we shouldn't necessarily trust the numbers we give at the same time that it's sort of more existentially or as you put it, holistically worrisome because it's showing that what's at stake here in those sorts of scenarios, this P doom nonsense, like it's it's our imaginations that are at stake, right? It's that part of the reason I give a five is because the range of possible scenarios in front of my imagination are smaller now than they were 10 years ago because history just feels increasingly binary. We're either going to figure out climate change or we're not. So it both seems less likely that we will and just more and more binary in the way that's going to come down. So that just starts to take the form of a sharper, like a, let me, let me see if I get this right from statistics. So it's, it's, I guess it's not a normal distribution anymore, but it's like, it, it becomes more bimodal in terms of the range of outcomes. Um, and so I can give you a static scalar number, but that's not really qualitatively capturing the imaginative situation that we're in, which is we're either going to continue to persist or we're all like screwed is increasingly how the world feels, whether or not you're talking about AI. That's my sense. Do you think the like AI safety community decouples those things? Because I think that they should be. If they're trying to communicate technical risk, I think dynamics of like institutional dynamics should probably be independent or like political dynamics should feel independent. And I think there is bipartisan support for AI broadly. Like if you take like what is happening with AI, there is probably more bipartisan interest than there has been in a while. That is certainly true. Um, I don't want to psychoanalyze the AI safety community. But since I'm already on the record calling them alchemists, we're already most of the way there. So, um, yeah, I think that what is happening there is there are many anxieties that start on the personal level or the interpersonal level or the sociological level or the institutional level that it's very easy to dissociate from. But then we channel that anxiety into how you hypothesize or speculate about these existential risk scenarios. And I continue to think that's where most of the energy on that is coming from. That, you know, many of the people who spent their adolescence or much of it perusing less wrong. That, that's basically time you didn't spend perusing other things, right? So your, your life, your, not just your life, but your development as an individual has been conditioned by this, you know, very particular interface for understanding yourself and your place in, in the world and in relation to a future. And so, yeah, uh, like to be clear, less wrong. It's a website that's primarily based on rational thinking and ways to like catch cognitive fallacies through rationality, which ultimately I think is kind of fighting biology in some ways. It's, it's useful to an extent, but it is about very quickly just pushing the limits of bio human biology in a way that's not really that 
<laughs> like purposeful. And I say this as somebody like I've published on Less Wrong um, and co-published things with, you know, members of the ASAFT community. So it's, and God knows it's not like I spent my adolescence doing the most productive things for my psyche <laughs> and it's development. So that's actually my point though. <laughs> as me and my brother are still addicted to idle clicking games, <laughs> a number go up. <laughs> Yeah, the burr the burr started when we were yeah playing playing those clicking games. I'm sure, um, <laughs> highly rational. Yeah, it's we we discuss. Yeah, this is sort of what I meant by the Oppenheimer stuff, right? Is that we to be a modern person means that you have learned to dissociate from a very young age between the internet and the quote unquote real world, between your friend groups, uh, between one app and another, we've gotten really, really good at partitioning our attention across these different interfaces that define our reality. Uh, we've gotten so good at doing that, that we're better at that partitioning than we are at being present, at paying attention, at cohesively understanding and taking stock of how we feel and why, including myself, for sure, God knows. So I think that often what I have seen in the AI safety community, if we're focusing on that right now, is a kind of embracing of that spirit and that kind of cognitive control, which is quite beautiful and quite abstract and quite refined, being directed towards objects whose stakes are all-encompassing, such that to really fully make sense of them would require exactly the kind of attention and holistic faculty of understanding that has atrophied. At the same time, we've gotten better and better at the analytical stuff. Hopefully, I mean to say this in the spirit of compassion, and hopefully that's clear. I hope that's clear. I've, I've also said this to many people in person in a spirit of charity. So can you repeat what atrophied? I'm sorry. So like it, the ability to pay attention, the ability to be present. So the, they're over, they're overly focused on their metrics. That they're trying to optimize. Well, and, yeah. And it's, or it's, they're in these circuits that are going too fast for them to notice. I sense a forgetfulness underlying why those metrics are the ones that are key. Why they have been made precise in relation to other options, in relation to other metrics, in relation, and again, this is still very abstract even the way we're talking about this, but what constitutes a spark of AGI, right? What constitutes a glimmer relative to what other things? Right. I don't even mean that as there's some other stock of metrics that I think are more important. I'm just saying just there isn't that initial kind of stock of what is the reality that you think you're piercing into when you're doing these things? Why have you latched on to these proxies in the way that you have? Why is there not this taking stepping back and evaluating your own, you know, to kind of quote, I guess, one of the papers I've co-written, uh, how is it that your positionality is shaping your epistemology? How is it that who you are and where you are 
as a subject in history with the ethnicity you have, with the experiences that you have, the background that you, that you have, how is that conditioned? What representations you even find interesting, let alone which ones you trust, the ones that draw your attention? Yeah, it's something that I haven't really figured out in this space that I'm realizing kind of connects all the dots that were that we circled at the beginning. It's like, what is the approach that primarily safety researchers have mean for the construction of RLHF as a method? And like, what does the what are the implicit assumptions, not necessarily assumptions, but like the implicit priors and biases that they would have had when designing that? And like, what does that mean in the context that RLHF is probably like the technology that has the single most promise to address some of the problems that the AI ethics community like wants to answer? Because the most proven use case for RLHF is probably safety. I think people are figuring out how to expand that from there into things like reasoning with kind of more convoluted use cases or just like really integrating humanity into the models, which is somewhere in between. And I'm like, oh, and there's things that are not acknowledged in those transition periods between the origin of RLHF because it was incubated in a lab by a bunch of nerds and no one really cared about it until it had been progressed for five years. Like, I mean, yeah, this is more your wheelhouse than mine. Although my POV, I think, is similar, is that it started as an idea. It's, I mean, literally, it started as a kind of NeurIPS paper. And before that, as a set of conversations that uh, started, I, I sense, I think, largely at OpenAI between Paul Cristiano and some of his collaborators there, where they were kind of proposing it as a potential approach to safety, is my understanding. And then it turns out, actually, the damn thing really fucking works well <laughs> uh, when you're dealing with LLMs. We've all seen the famous diagram of the like Lovecraftian monster of like unsupervised <laughs> learning. And then it's got this like anglerfish. We'll, we'll have to put a link into it. Yeah, it's got that <laughs> that kind of like it's like a deep sea angler. It's got the thing, the light shining down that's the RLHF in front of like the human mask of like the I guess that's the labeled data. Yeah, people can look at the image. I guess what I'm really stuck on is like what does like human measurement mean? And like what were the original ideas around human measurement to them? Because like, I think from a rational perspective, I think you, that could point to shortcomings that they now, that you're still probably making that we haven't thought through. Maybe not. I think I've gone on many rants about reward models and things like this, but even at a higher level, it's like how they were approaching the problem would be pretty instructive and we don't really know. What do you think are the, what is your intuition there about the limits of those assumptions? It really has to do with um, like, they're taking very, like they knew that the data was incomplete at the time. And that's why it's so funny as saying that it's an alignment technique. It's like, I feel like it was almost an alignment technique where there's the motivation for the solution, but has been quickly divorced from that. So they're like motivated from the solution to try to figure out how a way to get human values into the models. But the, we haven't really reached that point again until like constitutional AI, where you could actually write down a value that is 
going to work on. But all the intermediate work was just ways to integrate human context in a model. But having like human data in a model is not this is a very strong proxy for human values. So like RLHF works by capturing the idea that it's easier for humans to say if something is good or bad rather than generating data to include. And then they wrap a feedback loop around this and plug it into language models and some signal comes out. But I don't think necessarily good or bad is ever a way to like close form encapsulate values. And I think that's what like the safety people wanted to do. Because I think they're probably I don't know off the top of my head, but there are definitely gonna be values that don't have good and bad axes. <laughs> like like making everything have a center point and a median for around human values is probably quickly going to become strange. And I actually don't remember from value alignment literature like what the primary use cases they motivate are. Like, is there a snappy thing like relative to the paperclip problem or whatever that is used for value alignment? I would just go ahead and say no. Is my sense? Um, yeah, it's. So I guess part of my intuition here as well, I was one of the co-authors on this, um, on the possibilities and fundamental limitations of our LHF paper that was dropped uh, a couple months ago now, I feel like, um, which was a kind of very large co-authored paper. And, you know, many academic collaborators, members, I'll say prominent members of the safety community who are represented in academia, kind of providing their perspective on how interesting it is that RLHF has been picked up in such an industry and infrastructure critical way to how LMs work and are very quickly being deployed and commercialized at scale. And trying to tie that back to what the theoretical motivations were for it in the safety community. My main takeaway from contributing to that paper is that it's really fascinating to me how the safety community of all people, the safety community has reopened the question of what human feedback is. This is a topic that social scientists would consider like to be their bread and butter, maybe cognitive scientists, maybe linguists, maybe anthropologists. The question of human semantics, the question of human context, how do you segment context and then aggregate it in a way that gets you back to the holistic depiction of that context? This is at the very heart of debates in social science for like, honestly, the majority of the 20th century. And in this beautifully inappropriate way, it's been kind of reopened computationally by big tech. And suddenly, many humanist social scientists and qualitative researchers kind of have to put their money where their mouth is on this stuff. And, you know, to tie this back to um, something that you know, played out this summer, there there were many members, many prominent members of the, is it fair to say fact community? I didn't mean to say fair as a joke there, but you know, the, the prominent representatives of the 
of the fairness, accountability, and transparency community who were in this. Um, there was a, there was a Twitter exchange this summer where uh, one one prominent member of the community sort of said, you know, the only existential risk that our community has to worry about is our inability to talk honestly about the capabilities of LLMs. So words to that effect. I'd have to look up the specific tweet, but that was the spirit of the tweet. And it kind of set off this internal firestorm within that community about whether or not LLMs are just fancy autocorrect. You know, whether they are anything more than just predicting the next letter in a string of letters at scale. You know, what actually, I mean, that, that is in a way literally what they are, but like, is what, what else are they? Does that add up to something more than just that specific technical descriptor of what's going on internally? And seeing that debate play out was fascinating for me as a kind of recovering social scientist, because I honestly think RLHF is this new frontier of scientific understanding of human culture and contexts that we've only just begun to barely demarcate, like barely demarcate in the last 10 months since the deployment of, of ChatGPT. That's my sense. Yeah, I think it seems like the, the existential tension among this kind of human side of the machine learning community would not have happened without RLHF because it seems like RLHF generally gave them the, the models like just this kind of flexibility that people were not expecting. And then a flexibility kind of helps models seem to take off in terms of reasoning and capabilities and just kind of doing the right thing. I think that's just like, because flexibility makes it better at answering the question and not kind of just like going down a rabbit hole in some ways. I think those two are deeply coupled in the evolution of these fields. That's the question, right? What is the flexibility that the models are learning? Is it really just stochastically parroting what has been thrown into it? Or is there something else? That it's picking up on. It's like at a, at a fundamental level, this is a good reminder for people that are experts and not. It's like the models are literally predicting one token at a time, which is like one section of a few letters. And then they could do this hundreds of times and generate what people perceive as a piece of art. So I think any intuition for what the models are doing is not going to be able to actually be captured in our brains because they're doing this hundreds of times and doing this like really complex attention mechanism. So like, I think no one actually has a true intuition for what it is doing on a per step basis, other than the fact that it's predicting one token. But the like reality is that it's able to put together much more than we would expect based on, based on the preposition that it is going to do this one step at a time. Therefore, like anyone would bet against coherence because you like don't have any ability to backtrack. Obviously, there are people re doing research on like backtrack and back correction and stuff like this, but that's not how any of it works. And then if you look at the data that RL is actually optimizing on, it's like really hard to discern the difference. It's like anywhere between like 
comparing two paragraphs that are decent based on a question that you had. So like you just have one paragraph that's obviously like there's some style thing that the humans are trained to like, or sometimes like factual inaccuracies or formatting of differences. So it is a very subtle kind of data pipeline for, from some sort of writing metric to outputs. I mean, I feel like I'm starting to go down the rabbit hole. We want to pull that back. <laughs> Arlegif to me feels kind of like a, it's some kind of white whale behind semantics and human meaning and context and AI for that matter. Um, a lot of conversations about AI, the most provocative, interesting ones, they do usually take me back one way or another to Moby Dick. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for those of people who haven't read that book, um, you maybe have heard of, you know, Ahab trying to kill a whale or whatever, but like that book is really about semantics. That book is really about the fact that somehow the language we have and have created to describe reality is fundamentally not up to the task of doing so. And the most beautiful passages in that book are about the failure of the narrator to even make sense of how whales navigate the world, which in some ways is analogous to the way humans do it. In other ways, just not because they have different sensory organs and they live in the water and they have a different evolutionary history and all sorts of other things. And it makes you wonder whether there is even a there there or whether there's just this dumb mass of animalistic sensation. Why does it have to have a will of its own? Why does it have to have a life of its own, a world of its own that's worth investigating? And we're in a kind of similar moment right now where it's not really clear if this thing is really just matching inputs onto outputs, why we feel like we're talking to something or getting something real when we are interacting with these tools. And yet there seems to be some kind of structure coming out of this process that seems very intimately tied, if not reducible to RLHF, that is responsible for getting something more than we know how to put into them. There's something qualitative being generated here that we don't yet, even the designers, I should say, maybe especially the designers do not fully understand. Yeah, there's, and now we're at the point where it's like the, the six months of RLHF skeptics were kind of all just getting picked off one by one. Like the, the the volume by which this preference data is now flowing into top labs and top and big models is really pretty astonishing to me. And like, I think that like it is a lot of data. Like I guess in the picture of the internet, it's not a lot of data. But really, everyone is doing this now without any clear central point of being like, this is what it works for, other than it being like the model's answers are kind of just preferred (laughs) to other people. And that could be the extent that people are measuring that. Like a lot of the chat model evaluations are by comparing to other chat models (laughs) on on the prompts that you made. So I think it, by definition, is not surprising if you have a set of prompts that you come up with for your own evaluation and like you split some of those for training and evaluation and you generate data that's instructed to be near that. And then you pump more of it into the model that like <laughs> the evaluation set are probably going to get better there. In some ways, that's not that surprising, but 
that comes in the scope of this RLHF stuff also being documented as not really degrading too, too much. I mean, Llama is a different example where there mm-hmm. was some discussion of like it being too safe and stuff like that. But there is no talk of general degradation as long as you steer clear of that area. It is interesting to think about. There are so many debates that have happened for the last, I mean, since World War II, I guess, is a cutoff point here behind. Do do preferences exist? If so, how do you measure them? If so, how do you aggregate them? If you can't aggregate them, can you actually leverage them to do social choice or not? If not, why? What are the limits of that? I kind of increasingly get the sense that, and these debates were never really resolved. They sort of just fragmented across the social sciences. So your answers to those questions end up being a function of just whether you're a sociologist or a behavioral economic economist or an anthropologist or a political scientist or which methods you choose to bring to bear to those disciplines. There's this profound, like, arbitrariness to how you answer those questions because at the end of the day, it's a story about, well, it's wherever you can publish your findings. That's, 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 that's what decides whether or not there's how you answer those questions. And the thing is, I increasingly get the sense these, these, these LLMs, they're, we talk about them, we say generative AI, what they're generating is a world. They're generating a new world of how to speak, how to communicate, how to orient yourself in your workflow and relative to other people. That's what's really kind of happening here. And that's interesting when I think about those old debates that never got resolved, because now I'm kind of thinking that there are maybe going to be objective answers to all those questions that I articulated. It's just that the way they're going to be resolved is like whatever makes the model converge and whatever sells. Like it's basically whatever language model wins or whatever standards by which it was trained. That's just going to be the answer to those questions. That's what will dictate the extent to which you think preferences exist, how they can be measured, how they can be aggregated, how they can be reconciled, how they can be adjudicated or organized to make consequential decisions. These models are just at the engineering level forcing a reconciliation of these methods in practice just based off of whatever works. It's a pragmatic question, in other words, not a metaphysical one. Yeah, and I, when you have this lens of like, what is RLHF doing? I feel like RLHF is just fixing something in the pre-training probably, where if you like get do the pre-training better, <laughs> you would like all of these things would work. <laughs> this is partially like a thought that is slowly bubbling up when you're mm-hmm. talking, but it's like if so many people are be able to see similar things, like everyone's pre-training methods are generally the same, and then everyone tries to do RLHF in the same way, but they use different data. And if it is the case that it is like most people get something out of it, it seems like it is just kind of like there are common flaws in how the pre-training data is biased because everyone trains on Reddit. And maybe like by training on preferences that are from places very different from Reddit, i.e. people sitting behind a desk doing specific things, it just like undoes some of the stuff that was problematic. And, And it adds like, you can add specific behaviors and mappings and things through RLHF, but that might be 
it's like the regularization of it might be the part that makes people think that it performs better. Where like supervised fine tuning is just like it's 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 maybe there's like path there's probably path dependence in machine learning models when you're taking like gradient descent is path dependent when you're looking at op local optimalities and stuff. And it's like just doing this instruction tuning, which is the same loss function as pre-training. It's just like not enough push to get it to properly regularize. Like there's benefits, but for whatever reason, this RLHF direction is just enough to actually fix, like fix the model rather than even just saying it's adding new things. And maybe uh, that's potentially one of my theories. Cause I, I mean, there's just like another paper from China that's like, we use RLHF, it makes it better. No details. It's like, okay, <laughs> it's like people are obviously like, they're not lying about this. <laughs> To hear you describe it in that way, you sound very um, blithe, I guess, or almost kind of indifferent to whatever the actual reasons might be. But I sense also on a deeper level that you are like highly motivated and very interested and not just in a curious way, but in maybe a kind of passionate way about like RLHF as a method. And you haven't said yet what that is. But what is the reason that you're so interested in RLHF? Or if, if, if you would be comfortable putting it that way, what makes you passionate about it as an approach? I think it just combines a lot of things that I've happened to work on in a new way of thinking them and like things that we have worked on. So like I was trained in model-based RL, which you're like using some secondary model of, with an inductive bias of the world to then like optimize a primary target which in model-based RL is normally robotic. So you're like, have a model that measure, understands the dynamics of the world and you're optimizing a task, like stacking blocks or running. But in RLHF, it's like, you have a primary text task that's generating text and the reward model and the, is like an inductive bias to try to understand what is like, <laughs> it's more related because it's like, what is better text or what is not, but it's, it's at a granularity that's somewhat different. It's like, there's, the valuations are all linked in different ways and it is just this the honest the like complete lack of communication around it makes it a big opportunity to have some sort of positive impact because everyone that's saying things about rlhf is just okay like meta for their credit did say a lot more but everyone else just doesn't really say much and it's just kind of yeah we use this thing it makes sense and it works like <laughs> i think answering the question as to why is a public service that is warranted when ai is moving so fast that's the simple version do you feel like you see sparks of i won't say agi but do you feel like you see sparks of anything beyond stochasticity in what's going on here I think the RLHF framework has a lot of potential to be extremely impactful, but people are not really thinking about expanding it. It's like the idea of actually removing the human or things like constitutional AI, which is you use a, another language model to generate synthetic data that the humans would normally be providing, like which piece of text is better based on which reason. So I think that all of these things that come after are potentially very profound impacts and for whatever reason, they're 
not really done as much now. I think that they're probably done and just not communicated yet, just given the time lag when things happen and when they're discussed. And especially in industrial research, it's a little bigger. There's more of a lag there. And I think it's ultimately removing the feedback, removing the human element just makes things move a lot faster, but also kind of brings in more of these kind of uh, like discussions of like what, how, what is the right way to do this and what, what is the right way to use AI systems in at scale feedback, which is something that the two of us have been kind of talking about for a while and trying to figure out because it's obvious that people have wanted to measure the, how ML systems impact people and how that happens over time, but there haven't really been the tools or the scenario to do it. And it feels like RLA Jeff and the related technologies are a big step towards doing that. So it's essentially like, how does the newsfeed algorithm on Facebook change people's preferences or habits or something? And RLHF is probably the closest we've had to creating an experimental framework around understanding that. To be clear, it's the fact that RLHF made people realize that kind of like outer loop feedback exists. So like John Shulman's talk at ICML where he's like doing... Like, like changing our models causes certain, like doing RLHF on the inner loop as a tool causes certain problems in the model as the, on the outer loop. And he was pretty much saying we need ways to actually fix this outer loop, which is like how the deployed model interacts with what the users are doing. And I think that's one of the final, like if you build extremely powerful AI products and tools, like that's one of the final questions that will never go away, which is like, to what extent are you manipulating your users versus enabling your users? And is that the two different sides of the same coin or is it distinct? I guess as I hear you talk, it sounds like you actually are approaching this stuff from the standpoint of what I would call more of a scientist in that you can, you're, you're talking about these things as if they're open research questions that are co-equally worthy of investigation um, and worthy of experimental comparison if not like controlled settings. That's the goal. I don't feel like people actually are doing it that scientifically, which is the type of thing that I'm trying to grow into and enabling people to, it starts with people like just doing empirical exploration and then understanding how to improve the method. But even like the empirical investigation is not, it's, it's not formulated in a way that it's like easy to make sense of the, experiments and one that will generate a coherent flow of like what to try next. I think it's mostly people trying things or people sharing partial information. How much do you worry about a difference in motivations beyond the lack of openness? I, we haven't talked about lack of openness in this conversation, but I agree it's important. But beyond that, I think there's a separate issue here, which is I think it's primarily in this case, the extent to which RLHF is used as a metaphor for like magic sauce on the models and that the general public doesn't really understand how to interpret what people are doing. We've seen that where people think that all AI is chat GPT. They don't know what the difference is and stuff like that. Like that's something that RLHF is deeply complicit in which is frustrating, but I think it's just kind of something that you have to do work to disambiguate. Maybe we can end on this note. Do you feel like we need 
What's more pressing? Do we need better metaphors or better studies? Uh, we're done with metaphors. We need better studies. We need no more metaphors. <laughs> that's kind of the note. I think that's a, a, it's like I was talking to a professor today and like asking about how NLP and ML are being impacted by all this language model stuff and like it's actually the case that NLP's community is probably more okay because it's like their stuff is just getting better and better and known at a way faster rate than they expected but there's known problems to do but everyone doing ML research is kind of effed because like now everyone just has to do language model research in whatever field of ML they're doing and therefore there's just dramatic change everywhere and there's no way to keep sense of everything. I think RLHF kind of dabbles in both because it's working in NLP, but the methodology draws on a lot. So it kind of has to find its home of where it's actually studied, which will play out. I think. New grad students starting this year, just a month ago, a ton of them are obviously going to work on RLHF, so by their ups next year, we'll have a lot better picture. You just have to wait a short 14 months to get all these answers. <laughs> so... I think it's an okay place to wrap up. What do you think? To be continued. We'll we'll keep yeah. exploring. I'll, I'll I'll bring the metaphors. You can bring the science. Anyway, to we'll see how that goes. We'll we'll do that and slowly up the spiceometer on our takes. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. Bye, everybody. <laughs>